but it is the occasion when Methodist Christians throughout the world particularly remember their origins and particularly the ministry of the earthly founders of Methodism, John and Charles Wesley. Brothers, Anglican clergymen, one a superb hymn writer and speaker, the other a brilliant organizer and networker. Quite different in temperament, quite different in health, but both used mightily of God during much of the 18th century in England and elsewhere. With others, they led and coordinated the fastest growing Christian movement in modern British history to this date. And what became the Methodist Church through various unions and permutations, now with some 67 million members throughout the world, began. It's said of Methodists that they generally fall into two groups. The first group don't know that the Wesleys ever lived, and the second group live as if they've never died. I want this morning to walk a middle way because it's right that we know a little about them, and particularly the Lord and the faith they espoused without suggesting that every hymn, every word, every book, every sermon, every piece of writing is absolutely determinative for our discipleship as Methodist Christians today. Because, in truth, they had some wacky ideas. For example, John Wesley published and reprinted a book called Primitive Physics several times in his life, in which among many novel remedies for all sorts of common ailments was the suggestion that the cure for boldness was rubbing raw onion into your scalp. Well, look around and you can see how well it works. (laughs) We're on much better ground when looking at the faith that fired John and Charles Wesley and what they passionately believed about God. So today, in what will be a teaching sermon, and now with some trepidation knowing some of the folk who are in the congregation, we're going to do a bit of theology together this morning because I want to talk about God's grace and particularly a phrase of John Wesley that the Christian life was grace upon grace. Uh, And uh, I'm just punctuating my notes because I think it was George who was with us this morning who first told me a story of a philosophy professor. He can correct me later on when I've got the, it right, but I'm using it as a preacher and I've borrowed it, George, it's all right. I've inserted it. A professor of philosophy was with her class and the students were being asked what their understanding of life and the universe and everything was. And one student said, Prof, it's all about a giant turtle. Okay, said the professor, uh, but what's underneath the turtle? Another turtle. Okay, so what's underneath that turtle? And in an exasperated voice, the student says, look, prof, let's cut to the quick. It's turtles all the way down. (laughs) Was it your story, George? Probably. When we asked John and Charles Wesley about the nature of God... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They say, in effect, it's simple and it's wonderful. It's about grace and it's all the way down. And they talk about God's grace in relation to human life in three overlapping ways. And in this teaching sermon this morning, I want to talk about the three overlapping ways. First, they preached that God's grace was prevenient. Long word, stay with me. 
pre-meeting before, veni, to give life or to bring grace. So the grace that comes before, well, before what? Before any conscious experience of divine saving grace in your life, that point of new birth or however you want to describe it. We'll come to that in a moment. But even to talk about prevenient grace, the grace that begins before, we've got to start somewhere slightly different. Because the Bible clearly teaches and the Wesleys clearly believed because they were utterly biblical in this sense. That all human beings are born in sin. We are members of a sinful race. We aren't sinners because we commit sin. We commit sin because we're sinners. And sin therefore doesn't attach itself to humans like barnacles on a ship as it goes through life. It doesn't sneak up on you. It arises out of you because that's who you are. How you were born into a fallen place. Sin is a sickness then which makes us sick unto death. And Wesley very often viewed the sickness of sin. uh, The symptoms of which he said were a breakdown in relationships. Every breaking of a law of love. In relation to God and in relation to one another. On this fragile planet was evidence of sin. Now if we're sinful... We are therefore totally unable by any of our own efforts to make the slightest move towards God. We are, if you like, paralyzed. And yet, John Wesley spent years and years and years trogging thousands of miles up and down this land proclaiming God's offer of salvation to everyone. And that offer of salvation has got to be real, it's got to be attainable, it's got to be able to be received. Because God wouldn't offer somebody something and then say to you, yeah, but it's impossible. I was just hypothesizing. So it must be possible to accept God's offer of salvation. But how, when we are unable to respond to God because of our sinfulness. How does our sinfulness and God's offer of salvation become reconciled? And in that sense, the Wesleys and Methodists who came after them talked about God's going before, God's prevenient grace. God's first steps, God's initiative to enter human life, to make people aware So, and and I I think as I speak about this, just think about your own spiritual lives for a minute. We might experience almost taking us by surprise our first weakest wish to please God. Our first moment of a, a briefest illumination about God's will and nature. Our first awareness that we're actually not in relation to God what we would be or we should be. And we respond emotionally to that. These evidence God's prevenient grace, said early Methodists. To be sure, not everyone would recognize them. Not everybody would ever respond to them. Humans could reject or deny them as anything else in relation to the offer of a free will God. But before we knew it, God was moving 
and calling and inviting and going before in our lives. And John Wesley often referred or regarded this as the work of the Holy Spirit, both in us and in the world. In terms of the provenient spirit in the world, I'll save that for Pentecost. Come back. Some of you will know those kind of experiences. Don't many of us feel something of the gospel, feel something of the nature of God before we fully enter into it? And we see this poetically and beautifully when we have our baptism service, which we had the last of a couple of weeks ago. And in the service book that we use for the British Methodist Church, though these words have now gone round the world, the minister picks up the little baby and addresses the baby, not the parents or first and foremost the congregation. So you look in a week where I've become a granddad again at a little helpless child and you name it and you say, Jessica or whatever, for you Jesus Christ came into the world. For you he lived, for you he died, for you he was raised from the dead. All this for you. Before you could ever know anything about it or respond to it. For in this act we proclaim the truth of the scripture. We love because God first loved us. It's provenient grace. But provenient grace was not sufficient of itself to bring about that crucial act of faith, the reception of faith, what John Wesley referred to very commonly as justifying grace. Saved from our sins by the grace of God in the work of Christ, he justifies us. Or if you want the shorthand that we use within an evangelical context, we're saved. John Wesley understood this grace to be free in all and for all. God's grace, he said, is free and it's universal. God does not go across the face of the earth and say, well, that country can receive it and that ethnicity can receive it and that people who speak that language can receive it. He said, this grace is for all. So there's not one person on the planet and never has been for whom God has not made an offer of grace. Because God in Jesus Christ died once for all, not some. Importantly, this doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. But the early Methodists were quite clear that it does mean that everyone can be saved. And when people asked Wesley particularly, how is it that some people are justified and some are not? Wesley turned to that uh, self-evident truth of human life. That we exercise our free will to say yes or no, to choose faith or reject it. And to those people who said to John Wesley, and they said it quite often, we can do nothing in relation to our salvation. We must simply sit here and receive it or not receive it. Wesley said, and it was contentious for some, no, you can choose Christ. 
You can stir up sparks of provenient grace and discover that the more you receive them, the more grace will be given to you so that you can work together with God for the good purposes that he wants to bring about in your life. Saving faith is offered as God's free gift, but then each and every one of us must choose whether to receive that gift, to open the present, as it were, or leave it underneath the Christmas tree unopened. This is what Charles was getting at when he wrote, He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love with those resonances of Philippians 2 that Judith read for us and bled for Adam's helpless race. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Saving grace. And then the Wesley sang and spoke about sanctifying grace. Because if justification, salvation, if you like, comes about in a time, sometimes in an instant, sometimes more gradually, then sanctification is by definition a very slow unfolding process. Sanctification requires uh, a continuing repentance and growth in grace and good works. One of the things I always remember Bob Tuttle saying is, I get converted every week. Converted again every week, every day. That's what sanctification is about. And Methodists call this process perfect love, entire sanctification, Christian holiness. For this grace not only sanctified us, but sustained us throughout our journey of faith throughout our lives, whether it was one year, 10 years, 60 years. Uh, Incidentally, Wesley did not teach permanent perfection. This idea that you crawled up to the top of a hill of perfection and planted your flag there and turned round victoriously to everybody else and said, I've made it. You could always fall from perfection at any time and you could attain it at any moment. Holiness was supremely about becoming more like the Holy One. Jesus who showed us how to live and die what was important and called us to be like him. That's what that powerful reading from Philippians is all about. To quote Charles Wesley again, change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise. And so perhaps we begin to see how grace, like the turtles in the philosophy class, go all the way down. God's very nature is grace. And I want us to take note of a couple of things as disciples of Jesus in this place as we move to a close. The first is that Wesley taught and believed and practiced that the grace of God, therefore, was active in every part and every phase of human life. 
This is not something that kicks in when you become a, a teenager or a retired person. There was a, a continuum of grace between prevenient, sanctifying, and justifying grace. Uh, I'll say something more about that in a moment, but these aren't categories. These are experiences of God being with us at every point. There's not a point in our lives when God's grace is not active in us and God's grace with us. During depression, yes. During despair, yes. During valleys of the shadow of death, yes. During the times of big decisions that are going to change our lives, yes. Because prevenient grace woos us. And saving grace saves us. And sustaining grace meets us at the point of our needs and equips us throughout our lives with courage and strength. God does not promise the absence of struggle, but the presence of himself. Grace, you see, is more than we deserve, greater than we can imagine to coin someone's recent phrase. And grace is the very nature of the one who says to us all, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Second, grace is grace. I've divided up these sort of categories in a way that sometimes people who write weighty books divide up the categories just simply for the sake of clarity. But in fact, there isn't one kind of grace for one situation and another sort of grace for another. We don't sit there at a point in our lives and say, Lord, I really need some provenient grace. God doesn't give grace in bits and pieces. Rather, we experience God's grace differently in different situations and different times of our life because it has different effects upon us and evokes different responses from us. But it's all grace. And it's all from the same grace-filled God. Thirdly, God uses the term grace in two, uh, Wesley uses the term grace in two ways, or almost automatically. Grace, he says, is the undeserved favor of God. It's free love poured out upon all people. But it's also the active power and the help of God. So that Wesley believed, and it was quite different to some other understandings of grace at the time, that God's grace is powerful and active rather than passive, so you just sit there and receive it or not. Grace is the voice of God that both tells you to change and then offers the power to pull it off. God doesn't wait for us to become clean when he says, be holy as I am holy. He comes and offers and cleans us up if we let him and brings new life. Grace is the power to change. Because when we give ourselves to Christ, he gives himself to us. And then everything becomes possible. And fourth, grace goes beyond mercy because it's all the way down. Mercy gives the prodigal son a second chance, but grace throws him a party. Mercy prompts the Samaritan to bandage up the wounds of a victim on the side of the road, but grace leaves his credit card with the local hostel. Mercy forgives a thief on the cross, 
but grace escorts him to paradise. Mercy pardons us, but grace woos and transforms us. The big question on Aldersgate Sunday, however long in the tooth or short in experience we are in this Christian walk is, how do we respond to a God of thorough grace? Who never gives up on us, who never leaves us without the ability to change, who goes beyond what we deserve, who saves us and saves us completely in Jesus our Lord. And the Wesleys suggested time and time again to people up and down this land and elsewhere, when they turned around and said, what now? They said, continue to say yes to what God wants to do in your life. How do we respond to one like that? Well, we can avail ourselves of the means of grace and recognize that it's not just bread and wine again. But for Wesley, it was transformative power to live in the way that God wanted. And one way we can all respond this morning, which I invite you, is as we turn to our next hymn and sing it as if we mean it. Son of God, if your free grace again has raised me up, called me still to seek your face and given me back my hope, still your timely help afford and all your loving kindness show, keep me, keep me gracious, Lord, and never let me go. We sing our response to the gospel this morning.